Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Joining me today is Ugandan diplomat Betty Bigombe. Betty has played a key role in conflict resolution throughout the Horn of Africa since the 1990s, when she led negotiations with the Lord's Resistance Army. Today, she's Uganda's special envoy to the South Sudan peace process. She speaks with us about the barriers to peace in South Sudan and the challenges of coordinating regional diplomacy at this time. We're super pleased she can join us. Betty, thank you very much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me. We're here to talk about South Sudan. You've been part of the regional peace process as the special envoy for Uganda for some time. Um, And of course, Uganda was one of the chief guarantors of this South Sudan peace deal. You're still very active in the peace process, including still traveling to South Sudan. You know, for our listeners, you know, the we've talked about it a bit on this podcast, but the two main belligerents of the civil war, President Salva Kiir and his now first vice president, Riyak Machar, they formed this unity government last year, a little more than a year ago. They finally formed some state governments as well. Um, but But as you know, there hasn't been nearly as much progress on other issues, such as, you know, unifying a national army, uh, forming a new national legislature. So I'm just wondering, uh, why are there so many delays in the peace deal being implemented? Um, a lot of people give different re- reasons. And some of the reasons, they overlap. There's been the question of lack of political will. But within that lack of political will, there's also been very deep-seated distrust among the parties. It goes back also to the history of the war. Uh, for example, I would say when the struggle was still going on, when South Sudan was trying to secede, there were so many little wars that took place. If you look at number uh, 1991, 1992, the White Army and so many others, and there have been tribal wars, all these problems were never factored into the agreement. There's never been a national kind of reconciliation. There's also when the war broke out in 2013, uh, it was blamed on greed for power, the struggle within within the SPLM. Yeah, all those are true. But something else triggered these issues that have not been addressed. Uh, But I also think there's been some regional interventions that have not helped the process. Again, if I take you back to 2013, when the war broke out, Uganda went in immediately, and Uganda fought on the side of President Key. That already compromised Uganda, so to speak, in that uh, it had already taken sides. And yet, people were looking for neutral forces to end the war. So even when the region came together, Uganda is already perceived as supporting one side. When Uganda went in, immediately Sudan came in to support Riyadh Machar. So there's some regional element to it all. And, you know, at the start of the war, as you know, there was actually some concern that 
this could spiral into even a regional conflict with, with Uganda and Sudan facing off on opposite sides. And that didn't happen, uh, at least not directly. Um, but then you had the interesting situation in which this current peace deal, which was signed in, in September 2018, you know, the main brokers were Uganda and Sudan, two neighboring countries that did get most involved in the in the war when it started. So can you just talk us to, as the, as the representative you know, at much of that for Uganda. I mean, how did this peace deal come together? Because that, that was sort of an unusual situation in which the, the guarantors and the brokers, you know, were perceived themselves to have been involved. And, and Uganda and Sudan were for a long time really terrible enemies, and they worked together to at least get Kier and Machar to, to, to form this unity government. There's some element, there was some element of individual distrust between President Museveni and the then president of uh, Sudan. But when they moved towards um, getting the parties together to talk, I think it was a very welcome intervention that the two countries were working the closest neighbors. I mean, South Sudan has long history with, with Sudan, of course, having been part of it, and Uganda having been involved in fighting, not to mention that in supporting the SPLA, to, to win the war, but Ethiopia did contribute as well. But this put Uganda and Sudan, they were looking at one, one another as arch enemies. But nevertheless, when they came together, I think it was a very welcome thing. The international community also sub- gave them a lot of moral support to support the peace process. That said, I must also point out that the agreement I think a lot of you heard the criticism at that time that it was not owned by uh, the people of South Sudan because they were under a lot of pressure. Sign here, initial here, initial there. So I remember talking to the parties at that time and they felt they were under a lot of duress to sign what some of them were not comfortable with. But nevertheless... Without that, maybe we would not even be where we are today. Okay, I don't say the country is peaceful, but at the same time, the guns have fallen silent. Of course, there are many, many things to be done to be able to realize uh, the total peace we are looking for. You know, in some ways, I've heard people frame the the EGAD peace process that did occur as it halted or at least mediated the regional tensions. And now what's left to do is for the South Sunnis themselves, you know, it's given them the space to, in theory, work on their own political process um, without their regional neighbors, you know, working against each other through that. I'm just, you described a peace process in which in many ways was imposed on some of the some of the elites. The agreement was signed in 2018, but it wasn't, like I said, until 2020 last year, when they finally managed to form this unity government that they agreed, and that was under very heavy, you know, regional pressure. Since since you were involved in that process, I think it's worthwhile to at least remember how far we've come, you know, because that was a real huge lift to get these two to at least stop fighting and then to form this unity government. So, So what was required to even get this far in the peace process from the regional actors? What I would say about the EGAD process, both ASIS and ARASIS uh, focused very much on SPLM adversaries and power sharing. This is something I've been openly critical about. The EGAD process did not dissect the problems that existed. 
it was just about power sharing, power sharing, power sharing. Part of the problem was lack of analyzing, diagnosing uh, the problems the country had. The national dialogue, which was conducted recently, dissects the problem. But the problem is, it dissects the problem in, uh, in, 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 the, in the country, in South Sudan. But um, it's basically being discarded. Um, well, I'm not saying it's a perfect document, but it's some document to work with. I mean, I can point out the process was not very inclusive because people were in camps. Did the committee reach everybody? But you can never reach people 100%. At least what came out of uh, the process is something that people, that came from the people, from their hearts and souls. The region itself, as you know, you mentioned it, also is in a crisis. So to me, it looks like you, South Sudan is on the back burner. Now, the guarantors, that is uh, Uganda and Sudan, the two countries could pay more attention. Because if the guarantors were holding the leaders in that country accountable, if they had the mechanism of calling them and let's say inviting them and suggesting taking stock of what has happened, what are the challenges. The region, another problem that the region has, you know, if you look at ECOWAS, ECOWAS is the West African Commission for Development, but eventually it became, I mean, when there's conflict, they're there. That means the leaders in that region are speaking one language. But I, I hate to say this, but we don't have the same in this region, unfortunately. And this is partly why um, South Sudan, in the state it is in, because uh, the, same th- the same thing goes for African Union. If African Union was keeping a check on what is going on, on the sub-regions, I think it would make uh, a difference. But at the moment, it appears like everybody is in their silos, operating on their own. Thanks. Well, yeah. So you you touched on on many items that that I also went to get want to get more in depth with um, on with you, um, including the national dialogue, which I which I hope to discuss uh, in further detail in just a second. But on this issue of the region, because this is, of course, one of the things I wanted to to talk with you about. Um, you know, you've been you've seen how this sort of regional diplomacy works very up closely. You know, in South Sudan is in many ways really the major regional EGAD peace initiative. And you've done a good job of describing this sort of a region very much in disarray and the number of crises that are going on. One of the things that I, I'm sure you're asked a lot and that and that we've been asked a lot as crisis group is given all of this and given the state of the region and, and you know, and there are criticisms of the EGAD peace process, some of which you mentioned before, even before, you know, the revolution in Sudan and the sort of challenges in Ethiopia we saw. So, so many have asked why EGAD just doesn't hand the guarantor, the mediation process, you know, to another party such as the African Union. So, so I'm wondering your thoughts on that. When you hear that, what do you, what, what do you say? I personally do not believe in just taking, how will I put it? I personally don't think it's just say, Igat, you haven't done a good job. Let's understand what are the challenges that Igat faces. Maybe it can be reinforced. Maybe, maybe it could be corrected. 
we haven't been able to sit with IGAD and identify the challenges they face. If, for example, you hand it over to East African community without understanding the challenges of IGAD, then East African community could even uh, do worse. To me, if the regional leaders had time and could focus and say, we have to bring peace in South Sudan, we have to the agreement implemented, we have to make sure that uh, they hold peaceful and sustainable democratic elections, then if IGAD says we cannot do it, is it IGAD as an institution or is it the individuals? We need to understand all these dynamics before uh, any changes could be made. It's, it's the hypocrisy that I see in some of the meetings that they will go and say, oh, the marvelous job IGAD is doing. And then right next door, somebody's saying, you know, IGAD has not done this, has not done this. We need to practice diplomacy that can bring sustainable peace. Do you have any thoughts on how EGAD mediation could be improved? I mean, you mentioned that there's the institution directly operating and, and brokering much of the peace, but then things don't really move until the heads of state get together in a summit and then decide something unanimously. Is is that the process that's fundamentally broken, and, and how could you possibly change that? Probably in one respect. I, I don't want to, to criticize EGAD at this point in time, because we, envoys, were brought in to reinforce IGAD. When uh, the leaders realized that uh, the process was extremely slow, but are we leaders also moving in the same direction? Some of us have suggested hundreds of times that we envoys need to get together to take stock of what is going on and come up with some solution. But you meet one meeting, maybe one in three months, and then so we're going in individually. The other thing I think too, is that IGAD possibly has not been empowered to do certain things at its own pace. Maybe if IGAD was fully empowered, it would be a different story. I'm sure you've heard this. We, we've heard this from, from some interlocutors, some diplomats. You know, EGAD used to be focused on drought and development, and that given how divided the region is, given the level of crises and, you know, how, how difficult it is to develop this sort of regional coordination and focus that you're describing, that for the moment, maybe EGAD should uh, hand over peace and security, focus on other ways of, of addressing crises in the region for the moment, given that state. And then maybe when the region cools down a bit and regional leaders are more on the same page, could revisit taking up this peace and security mandate again. What do you think would happen um, if you didn't have an EGAD working on peace processes? Is it one of those things that, you know, if it doesn't exist, you would need to invent it? I'm one of those who said, you know, why bring EGAD into this? The mandate of EGAD is very, very clear. When the region was invaded by locusts, this is exactly what EGAD should be doing, chasing locusts, looking at drought. There's also, shall I call it, malaise in the, re- in, in the region, creating so many bodies. Now, you have East African community that has uh, peace and security. You have Comesa, peace and security. You have the Great Lakes uh, 
conference something, it has peace and security. Do we need all of this? Everybody goes and says, oh, you know, we're doing mediation. Oh, we want to do this mediation. And so we want some funding. And I hear another body is going to be created by European Union, which would comprise of Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somali, and Eritrea or something like this. But that is also, I do not blame the region, because development partners are behind it. They're the ones who fund them. Everybody's everywhere. Everybody's running for resources. Yeah, thanks for those interesting thoughts. We had on the Undersecretary General Hannah Tete on earlier this uh, this podcast season, and, sh- and she was reflecting on her lessons from from West Africa and ECOWAS and pointing out, you know, the dynamic that you said, uh, which is that, you know, while EGAD is basically primarily funded from the outside, heavily by the EU, you know, in ECOWAS had had real buy-in from from member states and 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 the way that that created very different dynamics um, between the two organizations. Now, I I want to go back if we can to the uh, situation inside South Sudan. Like you said, you you know you're still traveling in the country, very active in the peace process, and you speak with a wider range of South Sudanese, both elites but also civil society. I'm just wondering, what do you hear from them right now? I'm on my end. I've I've never really seen such extreme levels of discontent really across the entire political spectrum. Everybody is craving for peace. Let me tell you this question that President Key asked me one time. He said, do you think I want to be a president of a country that is at war? But then what is it that we need to do that can bring that peace? What is it that the locals can do, the the people themselves, so that we talk about homegrown peace, we talk about ownership of the process, what is that that is lacking? Because everybody will tell you exactly that. We want peace. I think regular engagement with the people themselves, with the government, civil society, refugees, something that is very inclusive. You've seen the dynamics lately of people who are speaking out openly. Let's bring them in to talk. At the moment, they go to the media. When it goes to the media, yeah, it's quoted, it's discussed, later it's dis- dismissed. Could we create that platform that some of these citizens interact with government so that their voices are heard? You mentioned earlier the uh, the national dialogue process, which, which recently concluded um, the end of last year. And it was started several years ago by, by President Keir. And so I think a, a lot of South Sunnis and outsiders had sort of written it off as a process that wasn't likely to be independent. But then the leaders came out with some really strong findings. They published their their grassroots consultations, which included, you know, a, a very, very deep discontent across the country. Um, but also the leaders suggested at the end, you know, that this roadmap of heading towards elections with President Kiir and Riyak Machar leading the country was, you know, was not going to solve the political crisis. And, and they called on the two leaders to actually step down. Given that the peace deal itself is structured as a power sharing arrangement, and then, you know, this national dialogue process, uh, which, as you said, was was perhaps not fully inclusive, but also is is perhaps more homegrown than the peace deal. How do you reconcile those two separate processes? And and like you said, how do we make sure that the national dialogue process and some of those findings don't uh, just completely lose steam? What I was hoping is that um, this report could be taken to the Africa. I mean, uh, the Council of Ministers of IGAD 
who would in turn take them to the uh, to the leaders that this is not something that can be ignored. I know the background to the national dialogue very very well uh, because I discussed it with President Museveni, and I still re- vividly remember when he flew to Juba to discuss it, to propose and discuss it with President Kiir. Because at that time we were looking at it as another way of involving the people in the peace process. There was a lot of skepticism. To me, I think convincing President Museveni would not be difficult, that this is the outcome of the report. You recommended it. We discussed it. You must now deliver it to the end. They might not agree to everything that the people have said, because it's true some of them are controversial. It touches them directly. So they might not buy it. But there's got to be a compromise somewhere where the whole process, which was very expensive, I I must tell you, cannot just be thrown uh, in the dustbin. So I'm hoping, I have already sent a copy, that maybe, if nothing else, if nobody else, Uganda could trigger some action, could say, the report is out, we present it, what do you think about it? Can it be discussed? It's almost equivalent to having a democratic elections where people select people they want, they voice their concern. And if we want sustainable peace, we must also respect uh, their voice. So we had a former U.S. diplomat on uh, a few months ago on the podcast, John Temin, to reflect on U.S. policy towards South Sudan. And that's one of the reasons I think it's really interesting to hear your your reflections from a regional perspective. He, his take with the Biden administration coming in was that the U.S. should revisit and press again for the regional leaders to push for the two leaders to step aside, you know, something similar to what the national dialogue process itself came to a conclusion of. You know, do you ever envision a scenario like that happening, um, given the regional dynamics, how you have observed those play out over the years? It's very unlikely. Uh, President Museveni thinks holding elections would be the panacea, and the country is not ready for that. The other thing is, they will stand back and say, who are we to decide uh, for the people of South Sudan? Going back to the national dialogue, that is exactly what it says. If they want to side with the people they would but it's very unlikely that they would do that they would say what they would what i see them urging for as a solution is elections elections without a unified force elections without a parliament elections without working systems and institutions so unless uh, this deliberate effort joint deliberate effort to help them organize elections that would be well i would say it's very difficult to find a free and fair elections in africa <laughs> i have to find one some very few or oh, there are few countries proper elections must be organized and it should be organized uh, properly then the people will know their right and choose their own leaders. I don't think they can be pushed into saying that uh, President Salva and Dr. Macha must step aside. It might be it's something that they whisper, but they definitely will not say it openly during the day. 
So yeah, we, we, we at Crisis Group, you know, we share a lot of those concerns about elections, uh, many of which were, were uh, in our report we did on South Sudan in February, if listeners want to check that out, called Towards a Viable Future for South Sudan. Um, so, I mean, before I let you go, I think many of our listeners will know that that you got your, your start in mediation in northern Uganda um, in the 1990s, if I'm, if I'm not incorrect, very much focusing on the Lord's Resistance Army um, and trying to end that conflict, which, of course, sadly, you know, never really ended, although it did, did move to other countries. I'm just wondering, question, I'm sure you get a lot, but uh, wh- what is Joseph Kony like? People who have lived with him will tell you he's extremely generous. People who have lived with him will tell you how humorous he is. Uh, how kind he is. But also when I went to uh, Scotland Yard, they, they described, because they met a lot of the his fighters, ex-wives, friends, relatives. We said he had uh, multiple personality disorder and that he's a psychopath because he could charm his victims to the point that they would say, this cannot be the same man who orders killings in the most brutal manner. This cannot be the man who orders a hundred people to be massacred at a go. That study was done because I wanted to know who I was dealing with because he could read and, and people believed he could foretell their future. He would tell them they would, they would be killed in battles and, and true enough, they would die. So uh, that was the kind of person... He was. Wow, that's a Joseph Coney as a psychopath with multiple personality disorder. Um, well, that's about as good of a note as any that I think I've ever had on this podcast to end on. Thank you for your time. You've been very generous, uh, both with your time and with your insights. So, so thank you so much. You're welcome. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Alan Boswell. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. Find us on Twitter at Crisis Group or visit our website, crisisgroup.org. The Horn is produced by Maeve Francis. 